I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we find in the Torah the principles that are stated clearly in the Gospels. Well, we have finally made it. We are in the final Parsha of the book of Numbers, and what a book it is. When we started this book, I mentioned that it is one of my favorite books in all of Scripture, and I hope that after this deep dive, you will at least appreciate why I made this statement. This book that seems boring and blah on the surface is truly a masterpiece of subtlety. It is a work of art on so many levels, and when we step back and look at the book as a whole, we find that it is indeed truly profound on multiple levels. At the macro level, the zoomed out 1,000 foot level, looking down on the whole book, we find that this book fits into the flow of the Torah perfectly. The book of Genesis being that book of beginnings, everything in the rest of the Bible finding its source here in this book, an introduction to everything that follows. Then in Exodus, we learn the name and the character of God as he rescues his people with no hope, draws them to himself, and takes them as a bride to be an intimate covenant with them. The symbol of Hashem as husband to his people is explored with not only the covenant, but also with the creation of a place for God and man to dwell together. Then in Leviticus, we see the requirements to remain in relationship. We discover just how far from Hashem we truly are. And we learn about the process that he has created to allow us to be able to draw close. In this book, the symbol of Hashem as God, we find out what kind of God and how to worship this God in great detail. And in this book, many of the expectations that are placed in the people who seek to draw close to Hashem are revealed. And then we get to Numbers. And in this book, the focus of the text turns. It turns away from God as the primary focus, and it places that focus solely on us as humans. And in this book, our name is revealed. Our character, our reputation, our treachery, our reliance on our senses, our base instincts that need to be overcome. And where Exodus revealed Hashem as a spouse living in intimacy with his people, and Leviticus revealed Hashem as a God forever separated from his people unless the proper steps are taken, to ensure the continuation of relationship, Numbers reveals Hashem as a father, a father who cares for and supplies the needs of his children, but is not afraid to punish for the purpose of training them up. A father who is raising up children to carry his name and whose reputation depends on them. And us? We are the irresponsible, ungrateful, snot-nosed brats that he has to put up with that he has to mold into those who will carry on in the family business, that he has the daunting task of molding into responsible citizens of his kingdom. On the macro level, Numbers becomes another facet in the jewel of the Torah that refracts the light of God into a new color and provides a previously unknown depth. 
At least it does for those who take the time to really dig in and discover what this text holds. And then on the micro level, we find that Numbers pushes our buttons to get us, the reader, to act in the way of Israel in the wilderness. This is a book that is dry and without much refreshment or meat. It's a challenge to the reader to continue to plod through the seeming wasteland of confusing stories and disconnecting ideals. It is a trial. Will you even care enough about what God has to say in this book to continue to search on until you find it? And for the majority of people, the answer is no. This was my answer for a long time as well. There is no meat, I would cry, and so I would skip the wilderness and seek excitement elsewhere. There's no refreshment, I would cry, and simply seek to be done with this experience of the book of Numbers. The way is too long, I would complain, and I would turn to things that were more captivating. And in doing so, I missed out on the process, the necessary process of growth. And it is this that is perhaps my favorite aspect of the book of Numbers. It reveals for you what are the greatest temptations that you will face in your life. Trials of desire and lust. Trials of pride and humiliation. Trials of power and fear. But this book also reveals the tools necessary to overcome these trials. Patience, humility, and faithfulness. This book peeks into the deepest secrets of my own heart, and it shines a light inside for me to see what I thought was hidden in the dark corners. Things that I suspected were not even there. And this book reveals that none of this is hidden from Hashem. He knows us so well that he can prompt men to write a book that so perfectly captures what it means to be human, and then how to overcome that. And he did so simply by taking a nation through an experience and then, having, and then having them record the results of their experience. And now I know for a fact that I cannot hide myself from him. He can see it all. He truly knows me better than I know myself. And in this frightful experience of being truly known and vulnerable, this book provides comfort. Your path is not unique. Your trials are not unknown, and your past is not insurmountable. Hashem sees you as you are. He knows what He intends for you to be. He knows what you need in order to become what He desires for you to be. An adopted son or daughter of God, who has been raised out of this filth and can now accurately bear His image into the world and shine a light into the darkness that others find themselves wallowing in. Hashem sees and He cares for even the least of these. And that brings us to this final Parsha. We all know by now that Hashem cares for and asks us to care for those who find themselves vulnerable in our society. But there's another class of people in our society who Hashem cares for. Not necessarily vulnerable, but in a place of isolation and weakness anyway. And this week we read of two situations that feature this class of people. So let's turn to the end of Numbers and read, and see if we can discover what connects the manslayer and the daughters of Zelophehad. Numbers 35, 9 through 36, 13, the end of the book of Numbers.
And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall choose cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who struck someone mistakenly shall flee there. And they shall be cities of refuge for you from the revenger, and the manslayer is not to die until he stands before the congregation for judgment. And of the cities which you give, six are to be cities of refuge. Give three cities beyond the Jordan, and give three cities in the land of Canaan, as cities of refuge. These six cities are for refuge for the children of Israel, and for the sojourner, and for the settler in their midst, for anyone who mistakenly strikes someone to flee there. But if he has stricken him with an instrument of iron so that he dies, he is a murderer. The murderer shall certainly be put to death. And if he has stricken him with a stone in the hand by which one could die, and he does die, he is a murderer. The murderer shall certainly be put to death. And if he has stricken him with a wooden instrument that could kill, and he does die, he is a murderer. The murderer shall certainly be put to death. The revenger of blood himself puts the murderer to death when he meets him. He puts him to death. And if he thrusts him through in hatred, or throws an object at him while laying in wait so that he dies, or in enmity he strikes him with his hand so that he dies, the one who struck him shall certainly be put to death, for he is a murderer. The revenger of blood puts the murderer to death when he meets him. But if he pushes him suddenly without enmity, or throws an object at him without lying in wait, or uses a stone by which a man could die, throwing it at him without seeing him, so that he dies, while he was not his enemy, or seeking his harm, then the congregation shall judge between him who struck someone and the revenger of blood, according to these judgments. And the congregation shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the revenger of blood, and the congregation shall return him to the city of refuge where he had fled, and he shall remain there until the death of the high priest who is anointed with the holy oil. But if the manslayer at any time goes outside the limits of the city of refuge where he fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the limits of his city of refuge, and the avenger of blood executes the manslayer, he is not guilty of blood, because he should have remained in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer is to return to the land of his possession. And these shall be for a law of judgment to you throughout your generations in all your dwellings. Whoever strikes a being, the murderer shall be executed by the mouth of the witness, but one witness does not bear witness against someone to die. And take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall certainly be put to death. And take no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, to return to dwell in the land before the death of the priest. And do not profane the land where you are, for blood profanes the land, and the land is not pardoned, for the blood that is shed on it except by the blood of him who shed it. And do not defile the land which you inhabit, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, Hashem, am dwelling in the midst of the children of Israel. And the heads of the fathers of the clans of the children of Gilad, son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, of the clans of the sons of Yosef, came near and spoke before Moshe, and before the leaders, the heads of the fathers of the children of Israel, and said, Hashem commanded my master to give the land as an inheritance by lot to the children of Israel, and my master was commanded by Hashem to give the inheritance of our brother Zelophehad to his daughters. Now if they are married to any of the sons of the other tribes of the children of Israel, then their inheritance shall be taken from the inheritance of our fathers, and shall be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry, and taken from the lot of our inheritance. And if the Yovel of the children of Israel takes place, and their inheritance shall be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry, and their inheritance taken away from the inheritance of the tribes of our fathers. And Moshe commanded the children of Israel according to the word of Hashem, saying, What the tribe of the sons of Yosef speaks is right. 
This is the word which Hashem has commanded for the daughters of Zelophehad, saying, Let them marry who is good in their eyes, but let them marry only within the clan of their father's tribe. And the inheritance of the children of Israel is not to change hands from tribe to tribe, for every one of the children of Israel is to cling to the inheritance of the tribes of his fathers. And every daughter possessing an inheritance in any tribe of the children of Israel is to be the wife of one of the clan of her father's tribe, so that the children of Israel possess each of the inheritances of his father. Thus the inheritance is not to change hands from one tribe to another, but every tribe of the children of Israel is to cling to his own inheritance. As Hashem commanded Moshe, so did the daughters of Zelophehad. For Machla, Tzirzah, and Chogla, and Milka, and Noah, the daughters of Zelophehad were married to the sons of their father's brothers, and they were married into the clans of the children of Manasseh, the sons of Yosef, and their inheritance remained in the tribe of their father's clan. These are the commands and the judgments which Hashem commanded the children of Israel by the hand of Moshe in the desert plains of Moab by the Yarden of Yericho. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created within them space that would foster life. And then God filled each of these areas of creation with living creatures, bringing them forth from the earth and dividing them by kinds to fill the earth. And on the sixth day, God created man and beast, and God invited man to come and to live with him in Eden. And he was placed in a special garden that was a place where God and man could dwell together and share each other's company. Here, God appointed man as the protector of this holy space, to watch over it, protect it from outsiders, and to work and maintain the function of the garden. And man failed in his mission. He failed to serve. He failed to protect. And man fell and became little better than the beasts that he was created alongside. After the fall, God and man could no longer dwell together because man contracted a disease that was contrary to the nature of this God who had created all life. Man contracted a sickness known as death, a sickness that all mankind suffers from. And so man had to move out of the garden to the east, away from the holy place. Man lost the intimacy and closeness to Hashem, something that man so desperately craves, that intimacy with his Creator. Over the next few years and decades and centuries, man began to cultivate his own garden, one for feeding himself and sustaining the semblance of life that remained. Because the impetus remained even after the fall, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And man succeeded. From the union of male and female, man began to live out this charge. They became fruitful and brought forth sons, two sons, a heritage from Hashem to assist in the task of being fruitful and subduing the earth. These sons were very different, however, and their differences proved to be too vast to overcome. Over the passage of time, one of the sons gained a measure of favor with Hashem, and jealousy and envy and anger was founded in the hearts of men. And in the heart of man these faults found fertile ground to grow, and grow they did, dividing the two brothers from each other to the point where one of the brothers rose up over the other and killed him. And this action, this further failure, precipitated yet a further removal from the presence of God, further east further away from the holy place, out into the wilderness. And here in the wilderness, this son, who had taken the life of his brother, became fruitful 
and brought up his own sons. And those sons took on the image of their father, and they continued the spiral further and further away from the garden. And within generations, tools were being crafted. Tools for tilling the ground. Tools for entertainment. Tools for death. Life became cheap. Genesis 4, 23-24 And Lemech said to his wives, Ada and Selah, hear my voice, wives of Lemech. Listen to my words, for I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. For Cain is avenged sevenfold, and Lemech seventy-sevenfold. Death to the one who dares cause even the slightest harm to me or mine. Death to the one who dares to shame me. Death to any who stand in my way. And man grew further and further away from Hashem, further and further from the ideal of creating and sustaining life. Now generations from the ideal of life, man pursued death wholesale and descended further and further from their purpose. Until one day, the stench of what man had created became too great. Hashem declared that he had enough of this creature of life who had corrupted his way so drastically as to celebrate and seek out the death of others. Man loved death so much that God decided to give him over to his desires. But mankind was a creation too precious to wipe out entirely. And so God spoke to one man and prepared him. Hashem created a way to survive the wages of death that were about to be poured out on mankind. And God and man worked together to save man from an eternal end. And God destroyed the sons of man from the earth, except for one faithful man and his family. An escape was made and prepared and clung to, an escape from death, a refuge in the midst of the onslaught of destruction and judgment. And when the payment had been fully rendered, this one man was released from his place of refuge to once again walk the earth. And as Noah took his first steps into this freshly cleansed earth, God spoke these words to him. Genesis 9, 1-7 And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and increase and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you is on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the heavens, on all that creeps on the ground, and on all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they have been given. Every creeping creature that lives is food for you. I have given you all as I gave the green plants. But do not eat flesh with its life, its blood. But only your blood for your lives I require. From the hand of every beast I require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood is shed. For in the image of God he has made man. As for you, be fruitful and increase, and bring forth teemingly in the earth and increase in it. No longer was the death of men to go unpunished. Mankind who was made in the image of God was given the charge of avenging the deaths of those who shed the blood of other men just as Hashem had done with the flood. But this judgment was not to be enacted against those who simply harm another person. It was not to be a payment for shame or injury. It was to be payment for death. Blood for blood. And the avenger of blood was born. A position that belonged to the closest family member of any person who was killed by another. Any man at any moment could become the avenger of the blood of a family member, seeking out those who had shed blood and shedding their blood as payment for the blood that had been shed.
and so a sense of justice was achieved, the repayment in kind for wrongs that had been committed. But the justice that was found here lacked something. It was a justice without mercy, a justice that was blind to the circumstances surrounding the act of death, a justice that was blind to the intent of the killer. This justice did not care whether the person meant to kill or not. This justice said, It has happened. It must be repaid. And for the nations that came forth from that time onward, this justice in the realm of killing of other human beings was sufficient. Men needed to learn that life was precious and not to be wantonly destroyed. And so time was given for men to learn this lesson. Or to forget it. Time for mankind to do a bit of growing and to determine the path that each nation would take. And every nation took the path away from God. Further and further away from God. Further away from the renewed presence that had been so near after the flood. And over time the paths of the nations were set, and their trajectory was further and further from him. And so Hashem chose one man, a man to create a family and this family to create a nation, and this nation to be drawn back to a place of dwelling with him, this nation to become a light to the other nations and to demonstrate the qualities of God. And to this nation was given a set of instructions that would guide them to being a people who would turn the tides of history back toward Hashem. But these instructions were not to be the simple tit-for-tat give-and-take instructions that had been given to their fathers. These instructions were to be more nuanced than that. They were to mold mankind into acting in the character of God when every fiber in the heart of man sought to move further and further away. And so the God who judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart, the God who weighs the motives behind a man's actions, introduced legislation that would take into consideration the intentions of a man when shedding blood. Because Hashem does not wish to be wanton in destroying lives just as He does not wish for us to be wanton. And because justice demands that man's motives be weighed against the result of his actions, this law, too, made allowance for the intentions to become part of the equation of justice. And so, into the status quo of the Avenger of Blood is interjected a means of escape from the Avenger. Not an overturning of the Avenger. An escape. Any whose life is being hunted by another because they have shed the blood of man is to have a place to which they can escape. Anyone can kill a man and escape to the city and be rescued. But a man who escapes to one of these cities because they have killed another man is to then be put on trial, and the intentions of the killer are to be discerned. But the judges are to act in justice. The killer may be wealthy, or influential, or honorable, or powerful. He may attempt to ply the judges with bribes, but any and all bribes are to be rejected. The killer is to be judged fairly. No release for those who have money or influence simply because they have money or influence. And no death for the poor and helpless simply because they cannot pay a fee or are looked down on. Every intention of the heart of the killer is to be discerned as well as can possibly be determined by the court and justice is to be served in the fullest. If a man killed with intent or hate in his heart, then he is to be turned over to the avenger to do with him as he will. 
But if the death was not intentional, if the death truly was an accident, then there is safety in the city of refuge. The killer in this case cannot return home. He is not free to go without consequence. If a man who has been found innocent of ill intent leaves the city, then the avenger is free to do what he will with the man. The death still happened, and there is to be a payment for that life. For those who are innocent of ill intent and who remain in the city of refuge, the life that pays for the death that is caused is the life of the high priest. The death of the high priest sets free all who are guilty of manslaughter. His death pays for their offense. And in this we catch a glimpse of our Messiah and the gospel, for we are all guilty of death. We kill others with our words, we kill others with our actions, we kill others in our thoughts. Not a single one of us has kept our thoughts from murder. Matthew 5, 21-22 says, You heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be liable to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be liable to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says, You fool, shall be liable to the fire of Gehenna. We are all liable to the judgment of our thoughts and intentions. We are all deserving of being judged guilty. But there is a refuge that we can seek. There is a shelter from the destroyer, a place that is in the house whose door is covered with the blood of the lamb, a place that is protected from the avenging angel, a place that is passed over when judgment comes. And the blood on the door is the blood of our high priest, the innocent man, the representative of Hashem, the one whose death pays for our transgression. The one who sets us free so that we can re-enter the world without guilt and without danger from the Avenger. Because the Avenger is coming into the world to destroy all who are guilty. The Avenger is Hashem himself. Deuteronomy 32, 35-43 Vengeance is mine in repayment. At the time that their foot slips for near is the day of their calamity, and the matters prepared are hastening to them. For Hashem rightly rules his people and has compassion on his servants. When he sees that their power is gone and that there is no one remaining, shut up or at large, and he shall say, Where are their gods, the rock in whom they sought refuge? Who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Let them arise and help you. Let it be a hiding place for you. See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. I put to death and I make alive. I have wounded and I heal, and from my hand no one delivers. For I lift my hand to the heaven and shall say, as I live forever, if I have sharpened my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I shall return vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. I make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword devours flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired enemy chiefs. O nations, acclaim his people, for he avenges the blood of his servants and returns vengeance to his adversaries, and shall pardon his land and his people. Vengeance belongs to Hashem. Those who shed innocent blood will be devoured in the day of calamity. Many will seek refuge outside of Israel. They will seek refuge in their gods, gods of wood and stone and flesh, and they will not find it. Hashem will visit the vengeance due the earth upon the earth in his day and all who are outside the city will be liable to punishment. 
but those who have taken refuge in him, taken refuge among his people, in his place of refuge, they will be pardoned, and this vengeance will not overcome them. It may seem like this day will never come. You may be a victim who is crying out as the saints do in Revelation chapter 6, 9-11. through And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the beings of those having been slain for the word of God and for the witness which they held. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Master, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each one a white robe, and they were told that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brothers who would be killed, as they were, was completed. It may seem like this day will never come, because as we look around, we don't see it happening. It seems as if the recompense that is due our oppressors will never come. How long must we wait until this day of the blood avenger? And the answer is, soon. But when is soon? That is the question. Second Peter 3, 3-9 through says, Knowing this first, that mockers shall come in the last days with mocking, walking according to their lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all continues as from the beginning of creation. For they choose to have this hidden from them, that the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water by the word of God, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. And the present heavens and the earth are treasured up by the same word, being kept for fire to a day of judgment and destruction of the wicked men. But, beloved ones, let not this one matter be hidden from you, that with Hashem one day is as a thousand years, and one thousand years as one day. Hashem is not slow in regard to the promise of some count slowness, but is patient toward us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. History continues on unabated. The day of judgment at times seeming far off, and at other times so soon. And some, some have given up. They've ceased believing that this day will come because, well, it hasn't come yet. But it will come. You can be sure his day is coming. Revelation 18.20-19.2 Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy emissaries and prophets, for God has completely avenged you on her. And one mighty angel picked up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, With such a rush the great city Babylon shall be thrown down, and shall not be found any more at all. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flautists and trumpeters shall not be heard in you any more at all, and no craftsman of any trade shall be found in you any more at all, and the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you any more at all, and the light of a lamp shall not shine in you any more at all. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you any more at all. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. For by your sorcery all the nations were led astray. And in her was found the blood of prophets and holy ones, and of all who were slain on the earth. And after this I heard a loud voice of a great crowd of heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and respect and power to Hashem our God, because true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great whore who corrupted the earth with her whoring, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. One day Hashem will avenge the innocent blood that has been spilled on the earth. He will pay back all of the evil that has been perpetrated on the earth. And in that day, if you have not taken refuge in him, 
it won't matter how innocent you believe yourself to be. If you are outside the city, if you are outside the refuge found in Messiah, you will be subject to the avenger. The only escape is to be covered in the blood of the Lamb. And the end goal? A reversal of the trajectory of death that began in the garden. On that day, in the beginning, death became the great enemy of mankind. We were cursed to live and in and experience death from that day on. Every person who has ever lived has become subject to this fate. And every person currently living will taste of this fate. Some small few might escape, but only after they've watched everyone they know fall. Death is the great stalker of all mankind. But just because we are subject to death does not mean that we should become allies with death. Death is an enemy that should be driven back when possible within the framework of righteousness and justice. But those who choose to ally with death make themselves an adversary to God, and God will turn them over to their desire. He'll give them to their ally. But those who choose to ally with the God of life will, in the end, find themselves on the receiving end of life. 1 Corinthians 15, 20-26 But now Messiah has been raised from the dead and has become the first fruits of those having fallen asleep. For since death is through a man, resurrection of the dead is also through a man. For as all die in Adam, so also all shall be made alive in Messiah, and each in his own order. Messiah the first fruits, then those who are of Messiah at his coming. Then the end, when he delivers up the kingdom to God the Father, when he has brought to nothing all rule and all authority and power, for he has to reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be brought to nothing is death. And part of being on the side of life is being willing to accept the death of this flesh without qualms, being willing to walk into harm's way to help others. Putting your life on the line to snatch others from the grips of death. Going into danger for the purpose of spreading the kingdom of life. And in this we discover that we should not be seeking to escape the death of our flesh, but rather seeking to bring life where we can, even if it means our death. This is the model that our Messiah left us, and there is no greater love than this. And then as we turn the page to the final chapter of Numbers, to the close of this book, we find in this chapter a repeat, or rather, an expansion of a previous story. In chapter 27, we first read of the daughters of Zalofchad and the predicament that they faced. And in chapter 34, we read of boundaries, the lines that Hashem put in place to separate and protect, the boundaries that were set around the land of Canaan that denoted the promised land, the land that Israel was to settle, the land that Israel was not to seek to move out of. And in chapter 26, we read that those boundaries were to be set according to the size of the tribes during the census of Israel. And so here in chapter 36, someone must have been putting all of the dots together and they arrived at a possible conclusion that was unsettling. The daughters of Zelophehad were given the inheritance of their father. Women were being allowed to inherit in a patriarchal society. Now, while this command to allow them to inherit was a blow to a purely patriarchal society, the culture was not going to change so quickly. And so the issue arises. What happens if one of these daughters, who are part of the tribe of Manasseh, marry someone from another tribe? 
In a few decades, when the year of Jubilee occurs and everyone returns to the land of their fathers, and the tribal borders are re-solidified to what they were at first, who does the land go to? Because the sons of these daughters would also be sons of their fathers of another tribe, and the land that they inherited might pass from one tribe to another. Confusion would be introduced into the tribal allotments and the tribal boundaries as they were to be established. And this situation is one that should not be allowed to happen. The tribal borders, once they're set, are to remain the tribal borders for all time. They are not to change hands decades, centuries, or even millennia later. They are not to be sold and bought beyond reclaim. Because of this provision, land ownership as the motivation for tribal warfare was removed from Israel. The other tribes would not stand for one tribe to seek to seize the land of another tribe. If this could happen to another, then it could happen to them. But what about a peaceful takeover? What if we simply enticed our sons to marry women who have inherited from their fathers? Perhaps this would become a legitimate way to occupy the land of your neighbor and seek to increase your borders. And that's what this case is all about. How do we prevent this from happening? How do we stop the slow, centuries-long diminishing of the boundaries that were not to move? And the answer? These women who hold land must marry within their tribe. These daughters of Manasseh would not be allowed to marry outside of Manasseh. And this, this should not be a problem since the tribe of Manasseh would have plenty of eligible bachelors that were not closely related to these girls. Sure, the pool is a bit smaller than the average girl, but these weren't average girls. They were landholders. They had a responsibility to the land and the household of their father that other girls simply did not have. And in these cases, the boy who married the girl would be attaching himself to his wife's family, rather than the traditional wife joining the family of her husband. And the sons would then inherit in the household of their mother's father as well as their father's father. But the land of Manasseh or any other family or tribe that found themselves in a similar situation would be protected from changing hands beyond recovery. A completely countercultural exception to the traditional methods of marriage and inheritance. And that's the end of the book of Numbers. So did you spot it? Did you discern the connection between the manslayer and the daughters of Zelophehad? What is it that connects them together? What class of people do they fall in? They're not the vulnerable class, the poor, the orphan, the widow, or the Levite that we read so much of in Torah. The vulnerable are a class that is to be cared for by everyone in the community. Steps should be taken to provide support for those who find themselves in this class. This is a constant and recurring theme throughout the Torah. But this is not who is being spoken of here. The manslayer may be rich. He likely has a father and family. And if the manslayer was a man, then he is obviously not a widow. And the daughters of Zelophehad, they're not orphaned. They're not poor. They're not even married yet in order to be widowed. And yet Hashem rules in their favor because they fall into another category of person that should be acknowledged and cared for. They're not the vulnerable. These two types of people are disenfranchised. They're marginalized. They are people who, without these laws, would not have a representative or someone on their side within their government. They are the isolated, the alone. They are those who don't have people fighting for them through no fault of their own. 
They're not the vulnerable in the classic sense, but they are vulnerable in a more limited sense. They are without representative, and this kind of vulnerability can lead to just as devastating of consequences as the usual class of vulnerable. You see, Hashem, He cares for everyone. He seeks to provide for all of those who have sought to take refuge in Him and return to the way of life, those who are dependent on Him. And when a person is dependent on Him in a community that bears His name, there should truly be no vulnerable person. There should be none who are disenfranchised. Now this does not mean that there are no outcasts in the society of Hashem. Those who come down with leprosy were to be removed from normal society. Their flesh has taken on a state of living death, and for the sake of the whole, they are not allowed to participate. They are quarantined away from the healthy for the sake of everyone. And there were others who were cast out of the camp, who were cut off from normal society. The uncircumcised, those who didn't join themselves to the covenant, were to be cut off. Those who do not go through the cleansing ritual after coming in contact with the human corpse were to be cut off. Those who ate or drank blood were to be cut off. Anyone who worked on the Sabbath was to be cut off. Anyone who engaged in an illicit sex act was to be cut off, among others. There were allowances for creating those who were disenfranchised from the community. So we have to recognize this is not a one-size-fits-all ideal. There are those who are to be disenfranchised and cut off and cast out into a place of vulnerability. It's those who have become disenfranchised through no fault of their own. These are to be given representation, protection, and are to be provided for. And that's how Numbers ends. Those disenfranchised through circumstance, through no fault of their own, they're to be given representation and are to be judged just as fairly as everyone else. And life is precious. It is to be protected and even avenged. And there are two sides that you can take, the side of life or the side of death. And while we are all born on the side of death, we can choose to align ourselves with life. We can seek the refuge that is found in our Messiah, and we can be set free by his death. This is the only hope that any one of us has to be found righteous in judgment. And so as you seek life, remember this. Life is not found in being a good person. Life is not found in what you do. Life is found only in the refuge of the Messiah. So seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deris Kai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. The music was provided by the Exodus Road Band. Check them out on iTunes or ExodusRoadBand.com. We'll see you again next time as we dare as we seek life. Shalom.